All right. Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux. It is the 5th of February, 2012. Remember, I will be speaking at libertyfestwest.com in about a week or so. And I uh, hope you can join me. And I will also be speaking through webcam at the Georgia State Convention for the Libertarian Party at, uh, sometime after. You can Google that if you like. And uh, that's it. I've got a couple of intros, but if we have callers on the line, let's roll the dice and see who we get. Um, James, would you like to um, dumbwaiter up the first bright caller? All right. Well, first up, we have Economics Junkie. Oh, dude. How you doing? Hi, Steph. Good. How are you? Great. Thanks. No intro? No. No. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I had a conversation last night with a woman, and um, some interesting things came up that I wanted to. Wait, hear Wait, sorry. I just uh, I just wanted to pause and let the free domain radio community <laughs> absorb the fact that a guy interested in economics <laughs> and philosophy had a conversation with. It's sorry, shocking. how did you pronounce that again? A woma. It's yeah. It's a email. <laughs> anyway, come on. So um, first of all, but but the argument that all threats are uh, ultimately. Th- threats of a murder um what if 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 cops were were to just tase you and not shoot you ever what would you say to that well tase you and do what right so i don't know what but it puts you down on the ground for a couple of minutes right and then they're going to do what they're going to put you in a car and then they're going to put you in a jail cell and what happens if you try to escape what happens if blah 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 right well, I can't escape because it's a cell, basically, and there's bars, and you know. And at some point, they release me, probably. And then, if I do something again, they tase me again. So it's just a continuous cycle of dragging me into a cell, and I get released. And it's well, but I mean, totally what if violent. you? But what if you attack the guy who's dragging you to attempt to bite him? And you, I mean, I guess they could try, right? But clearly, tasers are less valuable than guns. Otherwise, right? Or what if you run away? Tasers got a range, right? I don't know what ten feet or whatever, right? So what if you're a little further away? Uh, clearly, tasers don't do as well as guns. Otherwise, police would only have tasers, right? Or so tranquilizing you know, darts or something like that. You know. Well, okay, but at some point, uh, it doesn't work, right? So I mean, if you think of the Waco situation, right? I mean, if they wanted to go in, they wouldn't want to go in with tranquilizer darts and tasers, right? Uh, some sort of armed compound or something like that. Um, there is, I mean, these people are armed. They have guns. And they have, I, I, I don't know the, all of the reasons why, but I assume they know quite a bit about how to control people. And so they have, you know, they have their guns for a reason. Uh, again, you and I can speculate as to what those reasons are, um, but I think it would be mostly speculation. But we know that they need more than tasers uh, because, of this, uh, because of this issue. And, of course, tasers can be fatal anyway, right? Okay. I mean, somebody has an underlying heart condition or whatever, uh, a taser uh, can, can kill you. Uh, this happened uh, in, I think it was in, in Canada, in Vancouver or something. They tased some guy and he just is basically, his, I think his heart just exploded. And so, um, yeah, so I mean, there is, there is a risk of that. Let me, let me give you the example why this came up. Um, so basically, we're in San Francisco and every other week somebody jumps off the Golden Gate Bridge. And so <laughs> we're talking about, she was telling me, I would want to do whatever I can to save that person to prevent that person from jumping off the bridge and so she considered it just to a right to um for example tase him or tranquilize him to prevent him from killing himself what would you think about that no i i mean well okay i mean the, the reality is that i don't think it's great to jump off the golden gate bridge 
Sure. I mean, you could land on someone who's on a boat underneath who doesn't want to die, right? I mean, uh, suicide is a, you know, a massive tragedy and something that should be strenuously avoided at all costs. But, you know, if people want to do it, then they should, you know, do it in the privacy of their own home where they can't harm, harm other people. Um, but as far as you can use violence against someone who wants to kill himself or herself, well, you have the right. I mean, you just have to go back to principles, right? You have the right to to destroy your own property, right? I can sure. buy an iPad and I can, uh, you know, drop it off a uh, or put it in a blender or whatever it is, drop it off a balcony and break it, and I don't go to jail for that, right? Sure, but this is like a, you know, this kind of scenario is one where she, she would tell me, okay, you would let that person kill himself, so it's sort of a little more, um, I guess, a little more of a touchy subject when it comes to somebody taking his own life, so. I felt kind of put on put on the spot there, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Really where it's like you would let him, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it it's not really in your power. I mean, let's say you wrestle the guy off the bridge and you strap him to the roof rack of a cab, and you went. Then he's going to be alone at some point. You you can't stomp someone who wants to kill himself. Right. But unless you, said, you I want to do whatever I can. I wanna, even people, I know. sorry, even people who are institutionalized or in prison or on twenty-four hour suicide watch can find ways to kill them. They swallow their tongue. They, you know, they find ways to do it. Sure. I mean, she was just saying she would want to know that she did whatever she could to. Uh, have that person not kill himself, I guess. But yeah. I, I, know, I understand look, but, your but argument. Let's, absolutely. let's play it out, right? So, so, look, you have the right to destroy your own property and you own yourself. So you do have the right to destroy yourself. I mean, I think that that's pretty inescapable. Now, does that mean that we want people? No, of course not, right? Any more than we, you know, we, we don't want people to, to destroy themselves. Um, but but uh, prevention is, is much better than cure. Uh, and... Um, uh, you know, we want to to find ways to intervene in how the children are raised. We want to find ways to intervene in how the children are educated. We want to find ways to intervene on how de teenagers deal with depression and anxiety and rejection and heartbreak and all that. We want to find ways to intervene. There's so many steps that lead up to suicide. I mean, we assume that this is suicide not based upon I've got a terminal agonizing illness that no one can cure. Uh, and I can't get enough painkillers in my system to reduce the agony. Um, I mean, that that may be a medical decision. I mean, I'm not one to judge that myself. I can't really judge how much pain somebody else can stand. It seems like a fairly subjective thing. But uh, there's so many ways to prevent suicide that, that society doesn't really do much about at the moment. Uh, so, for instance, um, there was a guy named Spalding Gray who was uh, an actor and he did a one-man show called Swimming to Cambodia, which is, which is good. And he showed up on sitcoms from time to time. And he wrote a huge novel called Monster in a Box. I think it was 1,600 pages. And then he wrote a novel about writing the novel and trying to get it published. And an entertaining writer, smart guy, and, um, and he killed himself. And if you know anything about his history, which you know, there's no reason why you would, uh, his, uh, his mother killed himself. Uh, herself, sorry, his mother killed herself. And as a boy, as a child, as a young boy, as a young child, he would go in and, you know, he's got one, I just, I really remember. Uh, he would just go in and his mother would just sort of sigh and put down the newspaper and say, you know, basically, how am I going to do it this time? Should I use pills? Should I jump off a cliff? Should I, how am I going to, how am I going to get it done this time? She would openly talk about self-slaughter in front of her child. And it's, um, it's not too hard to see how that kind of 
intentionality, um, the death wish, Thanatos, as Freud, Freud would call it, the death wish would be implanted in, in someone. We talked about uh, Amy Winehouse uh, the other day. So there's a huge amount that people can do to prevent suicide that I think in a free society would be much more acted upon than, than it is now. But yeah, I mean, people have the right to end their own lives. I mean, that's, that's moral, but it's also practical um, because that's just a reality that, that they can. Um, I mean, if you're living with somebody who wants to kill you, you can have that person thrown in jail. You can move away from them. But if somebody wants to kill themselves, they can't move away from themselves, right? You can't. No. I just, I don't see that you can. Now, I mean, if you sort of go from the theory to the practice, let's look in a, in a free society. Let's say someone's on the Golden Gate Bridge about to jump off. And I wrestle them back and hold them down until uh, some healthcare workers come here. And this guy is, is really, really angry. And, you know, he wants to sue me for not letting me kill him, uh, himself, for not letting me kill himself. Not letting, sorry, not letting him kill him. I don't know why I'm having a problem with pronouns today. He wants to sue me for not letting him kill himself. Do you really think that any agency is going to uphold that? Because it could be, I, I don't know what his history is. It could be that he's got a brain tumor. And he believes he's being chased by a pack of rabid wolves. He could be on hallucinogens and believes that space aliens are shooting lasers from right above that cumulus cloud that looks like the left nutsack of Don Rickles. I don't know. Right. So he, he may not actually want to kill himself. He might just be in a disturbed state of mind for some medical or pharmacological reason, in which case he would thank me. You know, he may be having some sort of epileptic attack and just doing the fast jig off towards the edge. So I, if I just come across that situation and I wrestle someone back who appears to be going over the edge of the Golden Gate Bridge, I can't imagine that any society that was fair and just would find me in some way criminally liable or, or liable from a civil standpoint. And so in a free society, your, your friend that you were talking to would be able to try and stop uh, that person. And if she wanted to, she could become his friend. And she could work on uh, trying to get him or her to find better ways of dealing with problems than, you know, taking the swan dive off the Golden Gate. So there would be nothing to stop it. But, you know, would it be institutionally necessary to, you know, enforceably confine that person? I, I don't believe that that would be, uh, would be fair or just. But I also believe that suicide in a – I mean, so suicide is pretty rare now. But suicide in a free society when people are raised well – uh, and peacefully and positively uh, would would be so rare that I can't imagine it would be much of an issue to, to worry about. So there is um, a situation where somebody could actually use mild aggression, and we would con we would probably consider it okay, I guess. Oh, yeah, of course. Look, I mean, not okay, but good. I mean, if if someone's got headphones on and you know, they're they're walking along the side of the road and some car goes, some guy has a heart attack in his car and drives up on the sidewalk and I tackle that guy and knock him over a hedge and break his leg. I mean, I've aggressed against him, right? But I no, say I, I don't him agree. for being creamed by... So, but no, this is a similar sort of situation. Now, I don't know, maybe this is an elaborate scheme that's been set up by the driver and the guy to get insurance money. I don't know, right? I don't know. But I'm going to do the best that I can with the information that I have, which is I'm going to assume the guy on the sidewalk 
doesn't want to get creamed by a truck. Yeah. And so I'm going to wrestle him over. In the same way, if I come across a guy trying to jump off, I'm going to assume that um, this is not necessarily – I don't have the right to assume I think that it's intentional suicide. It could just be delusion. He could be dehydrated. He could be having some sort of brain seizure. He could be having a stroke and hallucinate. I don't know, right? So I'm going to try and help him. And if then he goes home and, and swallows all those other pills in the world, then, you know, then I guess I've got my answer as to what he was trying to do. But I wouldn't assume that. I see. I, I just want to um, point out one thing. I see a fundamental difference in somebody, somebody walking in front of a car with headphones and somebody actually wanting to kill himself. And uh, no, no, no. Sorry. But, sorry. You're, you're describing intention, which can't be known. This is my argument is you can't know if somebody's trying to jump off the bridge. You can't know if they are intentionally suicidal because you, we don't know their intention. We, we know but that they're – we can see the, what they're doing, but we can't gauge their intention. But if it compared with a headphone guy, isn't it much more likely that the suicide guy has the intention? I mean obviously well, yeah, because Sure, sure, guy. but he may not be sane at the moment. So, but if you let's say we know he's sane at the moment. Well, wait, wait, wait. No, your woman. Sorry, your lady friend. Sorry to keep interrupting, but your lady friend said I would want to stop that person. We don't know if he's sane at the moment because you have to act, right? You've got three seconds mm. to see whether you tackle the guy trying to jump off the bridge. You have mm -hmm. no way to gauge whether he's sane or not, whether it's biochemical, whether it's pharma pharmacological, whether it's a stroke, whether it's a brain tumor, whether it's whatever, right? We don't know. Or he's on drugs, or he's. Yeah, that's what I mean by pharmacological, right? He's either on prescribed or non-prescribed drugs or, or whatever, right? Okay. So he's, he could just be having a really bad trip. And when he comes to, he'd be like, I'm so thank you so much. I would have just – I would have died. Right. right. And if he's not, then next time he does it, you probably don't want to save him because – Well, the odds of you being there the next time he tries to kill himself. Right. I mean right. if he weren't, really wants to kill himself and, and doing it in public – Ah, it's an interesting thought, actually. Yeah, so he's going to do it privately. If he if he gets in, if he keeps getting interrupted in public, he'll do it privately. But there could be an argument to say that if somebody is doing it in a public way, part of them may want someone to intervene, right? Right. That would be but an then, argument for intervention. I guess in a free not, sorry, go ahead. I guess in a, in a free society, but to take this further, I'm just thinking out loud. In a free society, everything would be privately owned. So maybe the owner would have restrictions. Uh, on the use of their property in the sense that they w wouldn't allow people or they would make it a, a condition to not commit suicide on this property. And then they would actually have the right to stop you and remove you from that property, I guess. Yeah. Well, sure. Yeah. And they may put up – if this is a common place for suicidality, they may put up barriers so that it's – you know, there's a bridge in Toronto where people keep jumping. And they put up these uh, mesh barriers so that people – Well, same here, yeah. Can't, right? Yeah. yeah, they have these fences there now and uh, – um, and I think – but as far as I understand it, and I, I'm really quoting off memory here, so if anyone in the chat room knows better, please let me know. But I think of people who attempt suicide, only about a third of them go on to actually kill themselves. Mm -hmm. Possible. So two-thirds of them don't, and uh, that's um, – you know, those are the statistics that you're working with. Mm -hmm. Some okay, one last are question. crying out for attention, but those that are crying out for attention choose a method that has a big, big opening for an intervention. Yes, that's right. They 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 take the pills and call nine one one, right? Exactly. Right, and I, I would Somebody not necessarily really say you know, sort of the vying for attention thing might be a bit of a non 
empathetic way of putting it. I mean, maybe people do it for manipulative purposes, but I think there's more crying out for empathy and crying out, not just attention, but, but empathy or help or something like that. Maybe some people Someone are doing it for really wants malicious Someone to die chooses a method you can't intervene with. They jump off a building, they shoot themselves, they do something like that. Yeah, and I think if I remember rightly, um, men do the irrevocable suicide thing far more often than, than women do. Yeah, men make it as gory as possible because they want to make a big guilt statement. Yeah. Women like to do something like cutting their wrists so they'll leave a good-looking corpse to make <laughs> people feel guilty. I think I may detect a slight lack of sympathy, but, but that's all right. I mean, so, uh, but, no, but the I reality is... No, I've worked with these people before. I, I, I've not, obviously. I've not worked with these people before, so... Um, and I've been on both sides of the question. Okay. Right, right. So, but it, uh, so, uh, so, yeah, I mean, so statistically... Um, a good number of people who are tempted to kill themselves go on to not want to die. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I think intervention is is important. But that having been said, there would, of course, be negative repercussions to killing yourself in a free society, right? I mean, say, well, how do you punish the dead? Well, obviously, um, insurance would not pay out. And, and this is, of course, the case now as well, right? I mean, insurance doesn't, life insurance doesn't pay out if you kill yourself. Uh, and so those kinds of things uh, would would there would be other negative repercussions, I'm sure, uh, which would try and create a disincentive for that kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great, makes a lot of does sense. Does that does that help? Mm-hmm. I had one last question, and then I'll just. Uh, oh please, yeah, no, you've got you always got great questions. Um, so she was saying if if somebody if somebody's doing drugs in front of his very young children every day, um. Would it be okay, or she said it would be okay to remove the children from that household uh, forcefully? Um, what do you think about that? That's, I mean, this is yeah, this is a really challenging area. Uh, so you, are, so I, I really wish I hadn't taken your your question there. Uh, <laughs> no, this is look, this Apologize. is the, the question around. No, it's a great question. It's a great question. These things need to be thought of. I mean, we need to have some approximation of an answer. Obviously, we can't work it out in every detail, but we need to have some approximation of an answer. So, um, so somebody is, you know, some sort of, you know, is shooting up heroin in front of his kids, uh, and uh, um, I, I assume. I assume that it's not the shooting up of heroin in front of his kids that's the problem, but the bad parenting that results. I mean, obviously, the shooting up is not good, but shooting up by itself is not. I mean, if he's diabetic, he may have to do that. He may have to do that in front of his kids or whatever, right? So it's not so much the shooting up as the negative effects of the drugs. Is that right? And the behavior in front of the children and, and, make, and, and making it part of their daily routine, I guess. Right, sort of. and I think we can assume that somebody who's shooting up heroin and who is a parent is um is a bad parent yeah it's not uh, is not doing exactly the best by their kids right of course yeah now uh, of course um there's i mean there's one of two so we have to sort of play it out the way it works now so there's one of two possibilities either people know about this right uh, or they don't now if they don't know about this or if only the kids know about it and they don't talk then the problem is not solved in any society right right because it remains an unknown mm-hmm now, if so, we're going to have to assume that the problem is known to to people who are willing to talk about it. I mean, I think we have to assume that. Now, if that's the case, now of course a lot of children don't want to report their parents because they really fear the consequences, right? Right. Right. They, they fear going into foster care that, for which there is ample. I'm sure. I'm sure many foster parents are great, but you know, there's lots of stories of of 
pretty horrifying things around foster care. And uh, where in Canada, again, to sort of speak locally, where the government has taken over the, the care of children, there has been unbelievably monstrous, monstrous occurrences going on. Uh, so uh, there was a huge scandal in Canada that went on for decades when Aboriginal children were taken from their parents to be assimilated and put into these state homes where uh, I mean, raped and, and beaten and sadistically tortured. And I mean, the, the, the conditions that these children had to endure uh, in the tender care of the state were just unbelievably horrifying. And so, you know, the problem is that the kids, you have to create some sort of environment where the kids feel that their lives will be improved by reporting the behavior of the parents. And at the moment, I don't really think that's the case. I think that they feel that um, uh, there is, I mean, there's two, two major problems as far as I can tell. Uh, the first is, of course, that they fear that they're going to be put in a worse environment. You know, with childhood, a lot of it is better the devil you know than the devil you don't. So they fear they're going to put a, be put in a worse environment. The other thing that they fear is because there does seem to be a tendency to attempt reuniting of families, uh, no matter how dysfunctional. And therefore, you know, they're terrified that, you know, A, they're going to go into some bad environment. Uh, and B, even if they don't, if they're then handed back to the tender care of a crazy parent, that they're going to get such unbelievable negative repercussions that um, – you know, it's like I'm way worse off than if I'd ever reported it. Does that make sense? Right. Right. So how does a free society deal with this? Well, uh, remember, of course, that ostracism is, is about the most powerful tool, right? In the, um, I mean, I've been sort of yammering on about the against me argument and things like that for, for years. And very, very few people, even people who strongly believe in a state in the society, have, or even people who are libertarians, they won't use the against argument, against me argument in their personal relationships because they fear ostracism, which is an amazing proof for anarchy, right? Right, right. I mean, the fact that people fear ostracism so much, even within the libertarian community, means that uh, they... They've, they've really just made a huge case for this why we right. don't need a state. The existence of the state is the best proof against the necessity of the existence of the state. Or people's fear of ostracism is the best argument against the need for a state. Because if libertarians won't, you know, when, when we have very strong moral uh, opinions, or hopefully more than opinions about the use of violence and statism, we won't stand up against statists in our personal life. That's, uh, you know, a fantastic argument for a, um, a free society. So... I'll just touch on this stuff briefly because I've got an article in Practical Anarchy about it, but we need to find ways to incentivize, right? And morality is all well and good, but what people really respond to, sadly, is incentives, and I'm not sure that will change hugely in the future. Uh, so who is it who can profit from – like who profits from healthy children uh, in a free society? I'll put that question to you. Uh, because you always hammer me with hard questions. So let me throw one. <laughs> so who profits from healthy, well-raised children in a free society? Well, several people, I would say the parents, um, because they have somebody who can take care of them in the long run. Um, probably. Well, the, sorry, that it has to be something specific to a free society because that's the case now. But there are, of course, still a lot well, of I guess insurance companies. Well, would, right? I guess insurance companies would profit. Because they yeah, people who protect you from criminals would profit because there'd be far fewer criminals, right? Right, right. Who else? Other people around me? Okay, it has to be specific to a free society. Um, yes. DROs. Um, <laughs> That's sort of an insurance company though, right? Right, right. Um, well, where do children spend a good deal of their time? 
school. Right. Is it school. easier to teach children who are untraumatized? Mm-hmm. Is it easier sure. to get better test scores and higher marks and all of that from children who are not traumatized? I would say so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It is going to be much easier not only to to have children learn but to teach a group of children, right? I mean I don't know about your experience in school but in my experience in school, 90% of the problems came from like 10% of the kids in terms of disruptions mm-hmm. and aggression and so on. And so having traumatized kids in the class uh, who are acting out is, is hugely negative for the reputation of a school. So the school is going to want to make sure that it has as few traumatized kids as possible. Now, I hope that's not going to mean just kicking them out, uh, although that's what happens in a state of society largely or they get drugged. But you have uh, – the, the, the parents are going to pay far lower insurance premiums if they parent well. Mm-hmm. Right, Because they're going to have to be insured for the actions of their children. Parents are going to have to pay far less in school fees if their children are attentive and reasonably well-behaved and, and so on, right? If they're not you know, throwing things at the teacher and threatening students and taking their lunch money and stuff, right? Because either then they'll be kicked out of school or they will – and the DRO may not let – parents off the hook as far as not having their children educated at all. And so my guess uh, is that um, from some of the teachers I've talked to, it's about four times harder to teach a a kid who's disruptive and acting out. So it would be four times the educational cost. So it would probably go from something like, you know, $4,000 to $16,000. And that's, that's pretty expensive. And DROs, of course, would offer free parenting courses and a reduction in your insurance policies uh, and follow-ups uh, in order to make sure that you followed best parenting practices to produce, right? So you would get your insurance premiums, like the number of well-raised children who just randomly become criminals and abusers and all that, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's it may be zero, it may be tiny, but it's not more than tiny uh, based on sort of the research that I've done. And so what will be the cost of ensuring your child's behavior if your child is, is better? Well, um, it's going to be one-twentieth the price, right? So, um, you know, if it's $100 a year to insure your kid versus two or $3,000 a year to insure your kid, if it's $4,000 to educate your kid rather than $16,000 to educate your kid, and if the difference between these two things is a bunch of free parenting courses – I can't imagine – I mean only the most insane people will, will would reject that and maybe go live off the grid, live in the woods and so on. That's a tiny percentage. I mean that's going to be such a tiny percentage. You, you'd count that on the camel toes of one camel. And you say, well, what about those people? Well, of course, the reality is that this, the existing society can't do anything about those people either. I mean if some – some, if two people go off and live in the woods and have their kid out in the woods and nobody knows where they are and nobody knows the kid exists, then the kid's not going to get any social help anyway. So um, there, there may be a few people who, you know, but I would, I would imagine that, um, uh, you know, if people want to get pregnant, they would probably want to tell their DRO, um, you know, just so that they can get, again, you don't have to tell your DRO anything and you can raise your kids however you want. It's just that the negative costs are going to accrue to you. And also not just the negative costs, but the risks, right? So we're just talking about maybe it's 20 times more expensive to insure traumatized kids or four times more expensive to, uh, to, um, 
uh, to educate him. But the kid, of course, if the kid does something that's really bad, you know, like tortures somebody else's house, then the parents would be on the hook. I mean, no, the insurance wouldn't cover that. There would be a very, um, I mean, they're very strict spending cap on what you would be insured for if your kid was from some true nut job. And so the risks would all accrue to uh, now. And we know that most abusive parents respond to incentives because they don't hit their children in front of police officers. So we know that uh, most abusive parents can restrain their behavior if there's enough incentive. And so what we want to do, of course, is build as free a society as we can with as many people with a strong incentive for healthy and well-raised children. And that will create a massive set of, of um, motivating factors for parents to become better and better. And we do know that parents, uh, even abusive and destructive parents, do respond to, uh, to incentives. Uh, and so we really just want their, you know, strict, strict uh, financial incentives for parents and for others to have well-behaved and, and well-raised children and very dangerous negative consequences if they don't. And as much social pressure as possible, of course, there and as much of a positive environment for children to tell the truth about what's going on in the family. Uh, and again, I can't answer all of the questions because there'll be 10,000 entrepreneurs trying to figure it out how to, how to do it best. But those would be my sort of seat of the pants answers if that helps. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you so much, Steve. You're very welcome, man. Anytime, man. You guys, <laughs> I love those questions. All right, next up, we have Sleepy Salsa. Hello. Hey, it's definitely good to be back on with you, Stefan. It's been entirely way too long. Uh, I, I have had... missed it. I have been pining. I have been uh, <laughs> stroking my salsa. But go on. <laughs> well, I mean, I literally have this pool of questions, which is actually last time I checked, it was over 20. And I think maybe if I plug away maybe once a week, which is like the, the weekly question, I think I might uh, get through it. But today, I'll just what's, ask you uh, one James, question. What's you like? Oh, sorry about that. Um, we have uh, we have about three other people online, so we can uh, get like two. Yeah, questions so in, throw a question in, and uh, you can always circle back if we if the well runs dry. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, well, uh, at the very least, I'll do one question, and then I like to make a uh, statement and whatnot. My question oh, sorry, is: James, somebody named Theodore in the chat room who's got a good question. If you can just grab that, I don't think he's on. He's just typed it in. But sorry, SS, go ahead. Of course, uh, I wanted to know what were your thoughts about the American readout. The American what? The American readout. It was this concept that uh, James Wesley Rawls came up with that sounds like a, how shall I say, a more updated version of the Free State Project, if you were familiar with it. No, the only Rawls I know is that creepy Harvard guy uh, who came up with the um, theory of justice, John Rawls. But no, so tell me all about it. Uh, I'm, I'm all ears. Uh, basically the short version, and for anybody who's curious about this, you just would go to his website, survivalblog.com, and it's somewhere on the left-hand side called the American Readout. But it kind of reminded me of the Free State Project in a lot of ways. Uh, his idea was basically to have a lot of liberty-minded people of various uh, political orientations basically go move and live in, let's see, I think it's Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, and then the eastern uh, halves of Washington State, and I believe that is Oregon. So that kind of uh, not Manhattan, no. 
<laughs> just checking. Yeah, not, you know. yeah, not exactly. So no good pretty, theater. That's what you're saying. Anyway, go on. Right, right, right. And not exactly, uh, you know, that uh, high life city stuff. I don't know because... if I can give up Broadway for freedom. Anyway, sorry, go on. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. And, and part of the reason, too, was uh, for other reasons as uh, well, including uh, agricultural uh, productivity, the ability to grow food and stuff like that, as well as uh, natural defenses and everything that kind of stems from that. So there was a lot of reasons for picking that area. And I just wanted to know if like, and here's the thing too, uh, Stefan, he actually specifically mentioned uh, Galt's Gulch from Atlas Shrug and kind of said, this is my intention with this is to basically have a real life version of at least one Gulch, if not several. So I just wanted your take on that. I think it's, I think it's great. Uh, I think it's great. I mean, I think that I I wouldn't move there because I thought it would sort of change the state or anything like that, or, but uh, it would be great to be among liberty minded people. I mean, or should I say, there's a, there's a lot that I would like, I'd find value in, in being around philosophically minded people, I think I would say. Um, you know, there are some people, as there are in almost every community, I mean, there are some people in the libertarian community who are, who are nuts. And I say this with the full understanding that there may be people in the libertarian community who think I'm nuts. <laughs> so I'm not, uh, you know, sort of pointing any fingers. I'm just saying that, you know, the sort of liberty alone thing doesn't uh, really have much to do with always being compatible in every way, shape, and form. Although, of course, I have found that it's pretty, it's pretty important. But it's necessary, but not sufficient. But yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it's great. Um, you know, at the higher end of the scale, there's uh, Doug Casey's Argentinian um, La Stanza de Cafayette, I think it's called. Um, and uh, he's got some beautiful stuff out there. It takes a little bit more scratch to get your way into that community, but certainly looks beautiful on the website. So um, I think I think those things uh, I think those things are great, and um, it's nice not to have to bite your tongue around people. It's nice not to <laughs> I don't know hope they don't ask you awkward questions about foreign policy or <laughs> your uh, opinion of the drug war. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, when they introduce you to here's my wonderful brother, the DEA agent, that you just go. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's great, and if people have the flexibility, I think it's uh, I think it's a great great thing to pursue. Well, I mean, I just when I was looking at it originally, and then I started looking to it a bit more. It kind of reminded me of the Seasteading Institute, except this would be more of a uh, land, actually, like the original homesteading uh, type stuff. We have like your uh, you know your house and you know your land to actually be a, at least a subsistence farmer, if not more than that. So I just thought that would be a uh, opportunity that people might want to look into a little bit more. And uh, Safan, I did want to just kind of. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. Somebody has just read read, read about Cafayette last night. It makes me wish I had a few million to get in. Uh, It's not that much. I I just want to be clear about that. It does not take a few million dollars to get into Doug Casey's um, uh, um, uh, horseback riding, golf toting, cigar chomping, uh, ranch of freedom. Uh, It's much less than that. So um, we should be really clear. But I think the houses you can get for about half a million. I'm not saying that's that's cheap, but it's not a few million. Uh, And of course, you can... Oh yeah, so cheaper lots are about 180k, uh, cheaper lots. So uh, don't you know? Talk talk to them if you're at all interested. And of course, you can go down and visit and 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 check it out. They have regular uh, meetups that you can sign up for where people go down and get tours and stuff like that. So if it's of interest to you, then uh, I would strongly I strongly recommend it. I'm sorry. Uh, go ahead. Oh yes, sure. And I would also like to extend you an offer if you'd uh, like to sit and think about it for a bit. There's actually a kind of yes. a uh, there's okay. kind of a uh, a sort of a uh, kind of a startup of sorts that I'm actually a part of 
that's going to try and host their uh, live stream and podcast over at blogtalkradio.com. And I would love to actually interview you uh, for my show uh, that's kind of geared towards more, you know, constitutional patriot minarchist types. But I think a lot of what you talk about would appeal to them. And I think we can start off with stuff like the non-aggression principle and then kind of proceed from there. But I would absolutely love to have you on. Oh, I'm, I would be honored. And uh, just send me an invitation. I would be uh, more than pleased and uh, very happy to help. No, I'm going to say help. It's not like charity or anything. But yeah, I would be very pleased to just shoot me an email. Okay, great. I will do that. And thank you, Stefan, for having me on. You're very welcome. All right. So um, a question that was raised in the chat. Uh, next Saturday, I will, with most certainty, bump into a girl I've really been interested in. I was just wondering if you have some good general advice to make the best out of the night. I'm interested in philosophy and economics, so I've never had a girlfriend. <laughs> That's why this is important to me. Right. Well, I mean, the first thing, of course, is you don't just bump into a girl you're interested. You bump and grind into a girl that you're interested in, and that way you signal your intentions and get yourself a tasty restraining order at the same time. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting question, and I, you know, I've uh, I've run the gamut of how to approach um, romantic or potential romantic partners. Um, it's interesting. Uh, I, I can sort of give you some of the things that have worked for me or not. Uh, the friend zone is a challenge. Um, the friend zone, you know, where you're sort of, hey, that's great. You know, maybe we can go out for friends and coffee and all that sort of stuff. That can be, uh, that can be a real challenge because you can get stuck in the friend zone. But um, here's, here's my suggestion. Look, Let's be shallow for a moment. Let's let's uh, climb our way up from the Mariana Trench bathscape depths that we normally inhabit, and to talk about some some of the shallower aspects that that are important, that are that are valuable. Uh, first, first and foremost, you know, get a haircut uh, if you don't have one. Uh, you know, shave or trim. Uh, obviously, um, a, a shower uh, <laughs> excessively. Get some light cologne, uh, and you know, put yourself on as a, a tasty Christmas wrapped present uh so that that's you know that that says a lot about sort of self-confidence and it's sexual presentation you know the the peacock fans out his um (laughs) his tail and we open up the forehead vents and show the breadth of our frontal lobes or whatever it is that we do i don't know sure the uh, sexual the mating display of a philosopher is uh, something to do with uh, the dance of the 12 library cards uh, (laughs) which is much more salacious than you might think but um, so, you know, you want to you want to present a good package, uh, so to speak. I think that's uh, that's very important um, in, in conversation. Um, I think I think there's a little bit of mystery is, is not bad. I've tried the approach of, you know, hey, I find you attractive. Uh, <laughs> would you like to go on a date? Uh, I think that uh, but but if, remember, the sort of blink thing is that attractiveness or potential attractiveness is usually determined uh, relatively quickly. So, uh, you know, recognize that uh, up front. Um, if she's in conversation with with someone, um, I know it can feel kind of weird. Uh, you know, uh, there's nothing called there's nothing uh, like the self consciousness of a philosopher uh, because you know we're about self awareness, we're about self knowledge, and monitoring our internal states. So the, the the good side of that is freedom from the determinism of defensiveness. The bad side of that is a hyper awareness of potential social discomfort. So uh, that's something to be aware of. But if she's in conversation with someone else, you can go up. And, uh, you know, just say hi and, and listen for a bit and so on. And there may be information there, right? So if she's talking about how she's just about to get married, 
to the entire Illinois Nazi party or some local motorcycle gang, then there may be some some evidence of uh, <laughs> what way to go or another. But listening in, I think, can be a really important thing. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I just, just ask questions a lot. I mean, I find that's very, very helpful and very important uh, to just ask questions a lot. Uh, don't be afraid to be goofy. Don't be afraid to be funny. Uh, if you like, I mean, certainly a sense of humor is a, a very strong positive sexual signal uh, because it indicates intelligence and it also indicates good humor, which is fairly important for, you know, the original, the, the sort of basic biological intent uh, of all of that. So, so yeah, I, I think the presentation is, is uh, you know, your presentation is, is really important and I would go in with a goal, right? I mean, the goal is, is everything. If you go in and just try and hope for the best, right, then it probably will get kind of confusing because being attracted to someone is a real distraction, right? I mean, there are a bunch of distractions in conversations with people, right? So if, if the person is intimidating to you, that's a distraction. If they're famous, then that's a distraction for you if you care about that. And and if they're really attractive to you, then that's a distraction. So, you know, have a goal. And the goal may be as simple as, you know, let's get, a, I'm going to get a coffee. Would you like one as well? And if she says, yes, um, bring me back one, then she may not be the person for you. But if she's like, yeah, that'd be great or whatever, right? Then, you know, just have a chat. And um, uh, But have an intention. And the intention would be get her phone number, get her email address or, you know, a lock of her hair or something like that. So you can, you know, build a zombie girlfriend if the real one doesn't work out. So uh, that, those would be my uh, my suggestions. But, but remember, I mean, first and fundamentally is that in every romantic transaction, and this is true not just of romantic transactions, you're not just selling, you're also buying, right? You're not just selling, you're also buying. So obviously you want her to be attracted to you if you remain attracted to her after getting to know her a little bit better. But remember, just like in, jo in job interviews, you're not just trying to sell your services, you want the other person to sell the company. That indicates confidence. And so um, it's okay to let her work a little bit for, you know, to, to impress you as well. Uh, otherwise, you're just a sort of a cringing, begging dog who may get some scraps, but usually a uh, <laughs> little more than that. Anyway, I hope that helps. I'm sorry that it's not particularly specific, but that, those would be my suggestions. All right. Next up, uh, we have Alec, if you're ready. Hi, Alec. Um, you looking for the S? Sup, sup. Hello, hello, Alec. Can you hear me? Hi. Yes, go ahead. Hey, hey. How are you doing? Beautifully. Greetings from Germany. Uh, it's Alec. Yeah, yeah. A couple of months ago, I have called in the show and I had a talk with you about property rights, and I had like an issue about the property rights um, concerning, um, yes, like self, like claiming self ownership. I totally understand. And then I had like an issue with a missing link, how I can claim ownership about something in the exterior, and um, your answer was not so satisfying because it was something what I, I already know uh -huh. and I was thinking and thinking and then I come I came to um, a conclusion or a result and that result was that property rights how we see them and self uh, claiming um, self-ownership over my body and um, and then out of that resulting into you know creating stuff in the exterior only makes sense um, on the pre-assumption when um, when we have, as humans, when we give us the exclusive right. Um, well, sorry, know, so sorry, you, I'm sorry uh, to interrupt you just uh, when you're starting, uh, and I want you to hold your thought. Yeah. But um, haven't we already established that I'm responsible for the effects of my actions? Because you said, Steph, your arguments, right? 
Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, but but the thing is... Right, so sorry, but just just for those who are listening, the the challenge is, can you have a discussion about property rights without recognizing that each person in the debate is claiming ownership for the effects of his or her actions and also accepting ownership of the actions of other people, right? So if you're having a debate with someone, then you're saying, well, there are your arguments and there are my arguments. There are your words and there are my words. And the words, of course, have escaped the person's body, floated into the ether, into the ear, and now have become part of the other person's brain. It's an infection (laughs) of language. And so, uh, and again, I don't want to knock you off course, and let's get back to your point, but but I think that if you stop and look at, and I'm sure you have, or stop and look at how we are debating, we have already established self-ownership and ownership of the effects of actions. You can't have a debate without assuming those things. But but go ahead. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, yeah, I'm, I totally agree. And it totally makes sense um, in the um, realm of of you and me and other human beings. But I was thinking that this whole uh, property right thing would fall apart or doesn't make so much sense or doesn't work really properly when we consider other non-human beings like animals or even material objects like plants or whatever that they would have the same rights and of course of course of course there's a problem of yeah well we can't communicate with them but um, then no it's not only because we sorry it's not just that we can't communicate with them yeah what's that it's not just that that we can't communicate with them because Let's say there's somebody who's Japanese, and I don't speak Japanese. I can't communicate with him. That doesn't mean that he has no property rights, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, somebody exactly. in a coma, right, may have property rights if they've sold a will, right? They're still – we have to respect their wishes. Somebody who has a do not resuscitate in a hospital uh, is exercising self-ownership even when they're incapacitated. So, again, I'm sort of using extreme examples. But, but to me, the reason that uh, animals do not have rights is because they – they cannot think in abstract terms. They cannot, uh, they cannot morally evaluate the results of their actions, but, and but they also not, do not, not have. Sorry, and they also do not have functional real alternatives to the to the to their actions. Right. So, so somebody who kills someone for money has alternatives to getting money. Right. Uh, they can get a job. They can beg. They can whatever. Right. Uh, but a lion who's, you know, in the Serengeti uh, hunting a gazelle, well, they they don't have the capacity to go to work, save up some money, and get a, a gazelle shank from Loblaws, right? And so the, the, the fact that they, they cannot compare their actions to a moral ideal, and they also cannot um, really – they do not have functional alternatives. In the absence of alternatives, there's no such thing as morality. So those would be my – you know, very, very brief. I know it's a big topic, but those would be sort of brief mm. ideas about that. But go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, but it's based on a, a whole bunch of pre-assumptions. And what I are mean, those? Well, I mean, I mean, first of all, we, I mean, we cannot get out of our subjective um, viewpoint. I mean, how we see that line in the Serengeti might be very very false and very wrong how the, that actually is. I mean, and also we can never... I'm sorry, how would... How would get, get rid of... Get, get rid of uh, what? Well, so you're saying that it would be wrong, but but how? No, I, I mean, I mean, we, we we cannot just. I mean, I'm just just pointing out that we cannot. I mean, we cannot talk for the line. You know. No, no, no. We, but because you, you we can't. We will, sorry, you can't. So fear, uncertainty, and doubt without a follow through or a standard, right? Uh, so yeah. so if if there's something that I'm missing in my evaluation of the line, do you believe that lions have the capacity for abstract language? 
Well, that's the thing. I, I, I don't know and I can't prove it, but only because I don't know and I can't prove it doesn't mean that they don't have that capacity. You know what I mean? Mm, I mean, it's I like, sort of it's understand. I could not prove that you are a subjective being. And only because, I mean, I, I, I can assume it that you are. <laughs> I hope you are. Sorry, let's go back to the lions. So, uh, okay, so, so obviously so, obviously, you and I can establish that we have the capacity for abstract language because that's what we're using at the moment, right? So there's, there's empirical evidence, there's subjective evidence for our capacity. It doesn't mean we're correct, but it means that we have the capacity for abstract language, right? Yes. For philosophy. And so that we can establish because... Because we use it, and we can establish that um, you know algae doesn't. Al algae, I think. Let's start with algae, right? Uh, algae, algae does not have the capacity for abstract language, and we understand. We we will accept that, right? Who's algae? Oh, sorry. Uh, um, uh, moss or or plankton. Let's say plankton. Ah, Krill, okay, right? Okay, I mean, okay. uh, an amoeba <laughs> does not have the capacity for abstract language, right? Well, yeah, but that's that, that, no, we can't say that, right? Yes, I mean, we, can. we 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 can only presume that it's no, like no, that, but no, we, we can't, can. can't definitely say it. No, How we can. can we say that? How? We can't because the capacity for abstract language requires a a brain, and a a um, the single celled organism does not have a brain. But that's again. There you it, again I mean, it's like saying does 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 a, does a plankton? Sorry, does does a does an amoeba have legs? Well, no. Uh, and does an amoeba have a brain that can support? Um, I, I don't even know if an amoeba has a brain. I don't think it does. But you know, can can an amoeba? Uh, does it have a brain that can even potentially support abstract language? Well, no. Right. So there's a physical characteristic that is yeah, necessary. But, but see, see, see. That's what I mean. You you're already pure assuming that in order to think, you need a brain. But b b what we can't say for sure. There might be like beings there which they don't need a brain to think. I mean, it's very far-fetched. It's good, no, very come deep, on. but I mean, <laughs> come on. I'm, just, I mean, I'm just saying. Tell me right? why, why, why are you reaching so far with this? You understand that this kind of discredits philosophy if you leave yourself <laughs> open to these possibilities. So you're saying that there's you, – you, it's like saying that there could be a being that, that has legs that has no legs. No, <laughs> there can't be a being that has legs that has no legs. Uh, abstract thought is the result of a highly evolved brain. And if, if a being – okay, can we at least accept that a stone <laughs> does not have the capacity for language? <laughs> come on, come yeah. on. I know you're German. I know you come from, from, from radical skepticism. Come I mean, on. Give me, give me that if you can't have a conversation with a rock. At least let's set the bar that low. No, I, I, I mean, I, I would say, I would say yes, and of course, I would say, but Not I was. Would say? Do you say? Don't give me these weasel <laughs> words. Do you say yes to the fact that you cannot well, have a conversation with in, a pebble? Inside, I mean, b b inside of this, this discussion of maybe considering that human beings are not the only sentient communicating beings. On the no, planet I never said that. Maybe I never, sorry, I never said that human beings were the only sentient communicating beings. I have no doubt that in the hundred billion stars and the hundred billion galaxies scattered around the universe, that there are other beings with the capacity for abstract language. I have no doubt about that whatsoever. Statistically, the the odds that we're the only one is so close to zero that it might as well be zero. Yeah, but. Can we at least accept that you cannot have a philosophical conversation? But I can't believe I have make these sentences. But you, we can establish <laughs> that you cannot have a philosophical conversation with a stone. That when that when Hamlet is speaking to the skull of Yorick, that it would be really <laughs> funny if Yorick answered back, right? <laughs> well, it would, and I mean, 
And because yeah, it would maybe. be absurd because a skull has no brain in it and therefore bone – you cannot have a conversation with a skull, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, well, I mean, we would project our thoughts there. No, no, right? no, 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 no. <laughs> Can you have a conversation with a stone, yes or no? I'll have to try it. I don't know. I never tried it. Did you? Okay. I think we're going to have to move on then because <laughs> if we can't get to that level of, of certainty, then there's nothing. If we can't build something on rock, then we can't. we're just launching out of abstractions and then you can change the base at, an, at any time. So if if we can't get to, to empiricism to the point where – like you'll accept the empirical reality of all the technology that allows us to talk, but the biological reality of the fact that a stone is not alive and the stone does not have a brain uh, or a circulatory system or or uh, a larynx to speak with or uh, anything like that. If you can't – like if, if you're fundamentally not willing to grant that there's a distinction between animate and inanimate, then I just – I don't see how we can we can go further in the discussion. I, I can't jump over that, right? Because then wherever we go, uh, anything could change going behind, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah okay. I, I totally agree on that one now. Yeah. My, um, see, my question is, why is that hard? <laughs> why no? Look, why, why is it hard to 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 agree on on that basic biological distinction, right? I mean, emotion. Yeah. It's because it, intellectually, it's not right. Intellectually, it's not. I mean, to to say it may be possible to have a philosophical conversation with a rock is. Um, I mean, even if we say that's Dwayne, whatever his name is, uh, that's um, that's not hard to say from a scientific factual standpoint or from a philosophical standpoint. So it must be that it's emotionally difficult for you, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, ex exactly. I mean, I wanted to just point out actually the extreme subjectivity and especially, um, I mean, it might well happen. I mean, okay, I've, I've got a friend, for example, right? And he landed in the loony bin. And... He start, He landed in the loony bin because suddenly the entire world plants rocks and everything which we can't have like communications or, or like conversations with started to talk with him. Um, obviously, he was also misusing some psychoactive drug, drugs very hardly, mm -hmm. but um, but still, I mean, just that the brain, our brain, has this capacity <laughs> to interpretate the information which is around in such a completely yeah, different uh, way. I, I right? dream every I mean, night that I can fly. That doesn't mean that it's possible for me to fly when I'm not dreaming. I mean, that the subjective creativity of the brain is legendary and stunning. And this is why I kind of, I mean, I, you get to take an LSD trip every time you fall asleep. So I don't know why people need drugs. But um, so we, we know that the brain has the capacity to animate an entire world with alternate physics down to the last detail. I mean, if you ever do lucid dreaming or conscious dreaming and you try and take control of your dreams, you can actually turn around and look and see every detail of a world, of an entire city, of a jungle, every leaf, every drip of the branches, the, 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 the stick insects climbing up the wet tree trunks, the coconuts trembling from the top of the palm trees, the, the clouds of the sky. Every pixel, so to speak, is generated dynamically by the mind while your eyes are closed. And you not only – I mean there's, there's tactile, there's smell, there's taste. People can have orgasms having sex with fantasy. I mean it's, it's incredible what the mind can do in terms of its fertility and creativity. I mean that I, I – you know, I am entirely uh, uh, in agreement with you there. Um, but of course uh, if people damage the barrier between fantasy and reality – 
then these capacities of the mind spill over into waking life. And I mean, I'm just, I'm talking about this at the moment. <laughs> I'm really fascinated watching my daughter go through the process of differentiating fantasy from reality. And, um, uh, it is a, it's a lot of work and it takes a lot of combing over, but she's really good at it. She knows the difference between it's not real, but it's a fun story, uh, versus, you know, it's possible versus it's real. And, um, so she knows that a man who doesn't talk can talk just because he hasn't talked yet doesn't mean that he can't talk. But she knows that if we go and we went to go and see the movie Chipwrecked with the um, the chipmunks, right? These talking um, rats <laughs> with um, uh, bouffants on the tail, uh, and she knows that that they don't really talk in real life. That it's a fun story, uh, and she knows about Santa Claus, but she knows that Santa doesn't fly through the skies with reindeer at you know Mach twelve. It's a fun story, and so she is very clear on the differentiation between that. And I've been asking her for over a year now about her dreams and what she dreams about. And she understands the difference between dreams and waking reality. So she's got all this down at two and a half to three years old uh, pretty well. Uh, she doesn't make mistakes uh, in this in this area. And even tougher things like unicorns, right? Well, she's never seen a horse with a horn <laughs> on its head. But that, you know, that doesn't mean that it couldn't be there, right? Because it's not self-contradictory property. But um, she's still sort of pretty clear that if she's only ever seen it on TV and if they can do magical things on TV, they're probably not real. And so that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, I mean, I have no doubt that, that people who damage the barrier between fantasy and reality can get some pretty powerful delusions. But, of course, they do remain delusions. Obviously, the plants and the rocks are not talking to the fellow because they can't do that. Um, but he is suffering from waking dreams. Again, you know, again, I'm just talking about this from a purely amateur standpoint. Mm. But given that we have that capacity in the mind already, the fact that it happens when people are awake is not revolutionary because it happens every day when they're sleeping anyway. Yeah. Let's go in a slightly other direction, but still with um, with um, self ownership. Uh, what do you think about possessions? Um, I mean, in the animal world, I just recently read some stuff about ri uh, rabies and um, other um, parasites. Uh, rabies, everyone is familiar, but there's like this other parasite which goes into the brain of an ant. And um, it's um, some parasite which wants to get into the stomach of a cow or other, an other animal. So mm -hmm. it, it starts with the ant. It goes which into stomach? the ant. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So it starts. It starts with this ant, and it and it makes this ant to walk every night um, onto the end of a grass helm, and during the day, it it just makes the, the ant would just go oh, to get eaten by the cow. Right. Lives. Exactly, cool. and then it goes. It gets eaten by the cow. And then the, then it develops like babies in the cow's stomach. Then it gets shitten out, and then um, it there's like this cycle of going back to the ant. Right. So. Um, I can't imagine and then, the, and, the ant and, colony's and, discussions about free will versus determinism must just be scintillating. But anyway, go on. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, how like about just with human beings, right? I yeah, mean, when when I mean, there, there are like cases of where you could say that there is a, a person and possessed, you know, possessed by the devil or whatever, or possessed by I don't know what by money. No, no, I'm sorry, I'm not sure how you I you mean, just kind of seem to slip that in there, right? You could say I would not say that there are times when people are possessed by the devil. Of course, but yeah, no, I mean, but that was, I mean, that, that was obviously when someone was infected by some parasite, which takes over the control by the brain. And then it's like difficult to say, right? Because oh, it, it could be epilepsy. It could also be people faking it, right? 
Yeah, of course. But but um, then going to, I mean, what do you do with a person who is like, let's say, in epilepsy or um, is like, you know, splattering like spit everywhere and, you know, obviously like totally out of mind, you know, eyes looking right and left. What, uh, I'm not sure what you mean by when you say what do you do with them. T tell me what what you mean by that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what like do you still respect their? I mean, can you still acknowledge them as their that they have their property rights, their their, their self ownership? Or, or well, no, I would you, say like, not. I mean, and we we recognize. So if I have an epileptic attack and I've never had one before. And I reach out with my – I have a spasm and my hand goes out and hits you in the face. You can obviously be upset, but you can't sue me for assault, right? Because I just – I had a – I have a – you know, there was a brain problem, right? I mean I was misfiring on all, all cylinders. So we recognize that involuntary movements are not uh, not subject to con conscious control. Uh, conscious control may be bypassed at that time. Uh, so sleepwalkers, right? Somebody who's sleepwalking. Uh, is, yeah, exactly. Is diminished capacity for sure. Yeah, there are certainly circumstances under which there is diminished capacity. I have no, I have no problem with that. Hmm. Yeah. Just this whole thing makes me think a lot. <laughs> well, you know, my, my suggestion would be. my suggestion would be that um, I think you're missing the point of philosophy, and I, I apologize for putting it that way. And you know, maybe you'll <laughs> think I'm full of shit when I'm done, but I'll tell you why. <laughs> Look, there are certain people who, when presented with a solution, will immediately try to find the exception. Right? And, and there's, mm -hmm. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but there is a point where it becomes absurd and also self-paralyzing and paralyzing to others, Right? So yeah. it's like it's like um, I don't know. You say something about uh, the, the the tensions between blacks and whites in America, and then somebody says, "Well, don't forget there are people who are half black and half white." Like, yeah, okay, that's true. So there are people <laughs> half black and half white. Well, remember there are people who are five eighths black and only three eighths white. Yeah, okay, that's. And then there are people who are seventy one seventy seconds black, and you know, like they just keep slicing and dicing to the point where it's like, "What was I talking about again?" <laughs> you know, and. While it's everything that they're saying is true, you actually can't make any progress because you end up splitting the atom and splitting the atom until you simply can't uh, you you can't do anything, right? Uh, you can't actually you know every term has to be defined, everything has to be a possibility, and you can't actually make any any forward progress. And I think that's a step up from where you are, though, because you're having hesitant you're hesitant to say you can't talk with a rock. <laughs> as an objective fact, and and so I you know I think that interest your interest in philosophy and consistency is admirable and fantastic, but you got to screw your courage to the sticking point and jump over the chasm of radical skepticism, because otherwise you're actually never going to end up solving problems. All you're going to do is confuse yourself and confuse other people, and that's bad for philosophy as a whole, because philosophy is about solving problems. And look, if biologists can classify animals despite each animal's distinctive each individual animal's distinctive difference, then we can do some categorizations too with stuff that's far more clear than, you know, I mean, if, if you took a rock to a biology conference and said, I don't know, is this a mammal or a reptile or, or fish or, you know, they'd all be like, what the hell's wrong with this guy? It's, it's a fucking rock. <laughs> like it would, you would be viewed as like, they'd, they'd call security. <laughs> 
right? So if, if biologists can manage it, and if my local grocery store can manage to categorize things, you know, well, this is a different shaped cereal. It still goes in the cereal aisle. Well, this cereal has sugar. It still goes in the cereal aisle. Well, this cereal, you put hot water in, not cold milk, still goes in the cereal aisle, right? If, if a grocery store manager can, can categorize his stuff, then we've got to be able to at least rise to the level of a grocery store manager or somebody who's you know, studied six or seven minutes of biology. And so just do the classifications. Uh, I know that in certain circles, if ever you express certainty, you're considered to be naive, right? Naive realism. Or, or you know, or you you just you don't understand the complexities of the um, of the environment, and therefore you can't like you know I get this all the time. I talk about logic, and people say, well, you know, there are these different systems of logic, and these different systems of logic uh, can all propose contradictory things, and blah 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 blah. You know, and, and you ask them to process a sort of simple statement like two and two make four, and tell me, okay, well, under what system of logic is that not true? And they can't answer, right? I mean, so there's this feeling that if you have some certainty about something, then you're missing something very important, that, that you are clinging on to certainty as a result of some psychological problem rather than, you know, if biologists can do it and grocery store clerks can do it. And if I ask my daughter, who's three, to, um, to organize the snowballs by size – or to tell me the difference between dirt and ice, she can do that, no problem, lickety-split, straight off, like a cannon, right out of the gate. Uh, and so, you know, we're just asking, can we rise to the epistemological level of a three-year-old as philosophers? That, to me, would be very important. Uh, and that's not a matter of immaturity. I think that's just a matter of rational acceptance. Yep. I would just add that um, philosophy is not only there to solve problems, but also to raise questions and to ask questions, right? Yeah, I think you just did it again. I mean, that's kind of an insulting thing to say, right? <laughs> of course, it's there to ask questions. But the purpose of asking questions is to have an answer. Yeah. All right. So well, well, but, not not necessarily. Stuff. I mean, it's also, it's also yeah, just one, quickly. I mean, it's, it's also there to point out other ways of seeing it things right and that's that's the only thing that's the only reason why i i went down that road like of entire skepticism because i wanted to see it in a different light even so i know that it is like mere impossible to get okay to, so to, if to, i say you know, a warm-blooded animal is a mammal what is the different light that we can see that definition in sorry again what was that a warm-blooded animal is a mammal what is the different light that a biologist would see that in With 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 well with recognizing that that is maybe also a feeling sentient emotional communicating being who deserves the same property rights than humans. Well, no, I mean, that would I, be that would be a that would not be a biologist. That would be a philosopher, right? Because the rights question is not dealt with in biology. Yes. Two plus two is four. What's another way of seeing that? What's another light you can see that in? <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. 
Well, no, but that's important, right? So you want yeah. to, you want, I mean, I agree with seeing stuff in other lights and creativity and new ways of looking at things and all. I mean, okay, I can, I can, I can actually answer that. I mean, I can say, I can say that is like, um, I mean, two plus two is four, right? Okay. I can see that. But, um, like when I see now it's me and my girlfriend and then I'm making two babies <laughs> and, then they make. I, I don't know. I mean, if I give those numbers some 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 something very specifically, it changes right away, right? I mean, two plus two is just an abstraction. Well, sure. Uh, but that, I mean, I mean, the philosophy it's, it's, deals it's, with abstractions, right? So the moment you take an abstraction and turn it personal, you can say, well, me and my girlfriend and two children make a family, not the number four. We make the number four and we make a family. Is that sort yeah. of what you mean? Yeah, kind of, kind of. Yeah, so I, I can understand that. But these are still true-false statements. You know, you, you, my girlfriend and I and two babies do not make a flock of seagulls, right, as human beings, right? So so there are still very sort of strict things. Anyway, I sort of want to move on if we don't mind because I'm sure we're going to bore yeah, the, of course, the hell of course. out of everyone else. But but thanks for the call. It was certainly interesting. Yeah, thanks thanks to also to, to listening me out. All right. All right, Chris, uh, you're up next. Thank you, James. Good morning, Stefan. How are you? Uh, thanks again for taking my call. It's my pleasure. That's what I'm here for. Hey, um, to, to follow up, I called uh, last weekend and spoke to you about an issue with my sister and my niece. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. And uh, I've done a, a lot of thinking and reading and about. research um, since last weekend regarding that. And uh, I did a little introspection as well and discovered that part of, at least for me, what I believe, part of what helped me get beyond some of the damage done by the destruction of our family when we were young uh, because my sister and I both did grow up in the same house and have very similar upbringings um, was the decision I made on my own um, to basically forgive. And I didn't really tell anybody about, you know, anybody in my nuclear family about that decision. Um, but I determined that if I uh, held on to the anger, the frustration, the hurt, the pain, that it would likely stunt my ability to go beyond it as an adult, and I didn't want that to happen. So um, I did some some looking around with the podcasts on the site, and um, forgiveness, the, it, I didn't see anything, and perhaps I missed it, but I didn't see anything that was uh, a little more concrete or substantial about forgiveness, and I wanted to get your take on the importance or lack thereof uh, of forgiveness in uh, healing emotionally, and uh, growing beyond, growing growing as an adult and moving on to potentially healthier relationships. Right, right. It's a great question. Uh, I do have actually a podcast called The Philosophy of Forgiveness. Um, so I'll just touch on this briefly here if people want to, if anybody knows the, um, if you go to the podcast page, the little search thing there, just type in forgive, forgiveness or whatever. I'm sure you'll be able to find it. It's pretty early on. Um, well, to me, there are, there are emotional states that arise from within us. I mean, I'm hungry, right? That is not somebody's forced on me, but it's not something that's forced on me by, by someone else, pretty much, right? I mean, there's something that arises from, from my own. Or if I forget something and I'm like, oh man, I forgot something, I'm so frustrated, that's something that arises from, from within me. But there are other emotional states that are relational. I don't, I'm not saying it's sort of a black and white thing, but there are other emotional states that are relational. So I can't will myself to find a, a food tasty that I find repulsive. Uh, I, and I cannot will myself to love someone whose values are 
ghastly, horrible, immoral, destructive, abusive, or whatever. And so there are the emotional states which are elicited by the actions of other people are the ones I think that I focus on when I talk about relationships. Because I think we're given a lot of magical thinking in society, which is around you can will these states. You can make yourself fall in love with someone. You can make yourself forgive someone. And my argument is that it's not the case. I think that forgiveness is something that is elicited in us by the actions of other people. Now, I mean, I understand. So people misuse this, right? And they say, well, you made me angry. And, and they take no responsibility for their own processing of reality. And they blame everyone else for their emotional states. And so, I, again, I'm not saying it's a black and white issue and it's complex. But um, so something like love, sustainable love, is something where it's my admiration for the virtuous actions of another person. Now, how do I prepare myself to fall in love in a healthy way? Well, I develop virtuous actions on my own, right? So that I end up not being attracted to nasty people, but being attracted to healthy and good and virtuous people. So the thing that I can do to sort of ready myself for that. Uh, but to me, if somebody wrongs me, it's my responsibility to say, um, I'm hurt, I'm upset, I'm not sure exactly why, but this happened and this happened and then I felt this way and let's talk about it. And if in the conversation they accept that they wronged me in some manner, then it's, up, then it's not my job to forgive them. It, it is their job to earn my forgiveness. Forgiveness is a kind of currency. Like love is a kind of currency. And you can, you, you, can't really, you can give it away if you want, but it just lowers the value of your currency. Um, and so it's up to other people to earn my respect, just as it's up to me to earn other people's respect. I mean, nobody has to respect anything that I'm saying or believe anything that I'm saying. I have to earn that through, you know, hopefully consistently rational behavior. And, and so when it comes to things like love and, and forgiveness, um, I am responsible for preparing myself for these states, right? So, so to, to be open to somebody's restitution if they've wronged me rather than just hold a grudge and use it to have power over them. Uh, so it's, oh, it's, up, it's up to me to be open to that, but forgiveness is not to me something that you just will onto other people. Now, I think what you're talking about is more along the lines of you have to forgive people in order to move on. You have to forgive people in order to let go. You have to forgive people so that you don't stew in anger and hatred for the rest of your life. And I, I would agree with you. I would just use a different word uh, than, than forgiveness. Uh, uh, the word that I would use is, um, is closure. That I think in order to have peace about your relationships, you need to have closure about those relationships. And closure to me is, uh, is certainty. Is certainty. And, uh, and so if you've been, you know, if, if, I, um, if a friend wrongs me or I feel upset and we talk about it and he accepts that he sort of wronged me but then he never makes any restitution or he repeats the behavior, then I can do it again a number of times. But if that behavior doesn't change, then I'm going to lose my desire to have that person as a friend. Now – I obviously don't want to sit there and stew in anger and hatred and so on, but when I've experienced, I don't have any proof for this, but I've experienced that when I achieve certainty or when I reach certainty about a relationship, I simply don't have those feelings nearly as much anymore. So I have certainty about my family of origin, and I don't sit there every day stewing in hatred or revenge or bitterness or whatever frustration about all of that because I've just accepted it. I have just accepted that these people are the way that they are, I am the way that I am, and there's no, there's not compatibility there that's going to be productive, you know, pretty much for either party. And so, for me, it's around um, coming to a rational and empirical certainty about the nature of the relationship. That is what allows me to be free of past relationships. I don't believe that forgiveness is necessary because, for me, 
if I forgive people who've made no restitution and then I use the same word for people who've made restitution, then I'm using the same words to describe bad behavior. In other words, people who don't make restitution for the wrongs they've done me. I'm using the same word to describe bad behavior that I'm using to describe good behavior, which is people who've done wrong and made restitution. And I can't, you know, as a hopefully clear-headed thinker, I cannot use the same word to describe bad behavior as I use to describe good behavior. But the word closure, I think, or certainty or knowledge, uh, is as certain as you can get about things, um, to me, gives me a lot, a lot of freedom and does not require me to use the same word to describe both good and bad behavior. Okay, I, I can understand that. Um, a, a difference, a difference, a word, because I agree, you know, um, that though, though in the past I have personally used the same word to describe when someone said, hey, you know what, I've, I've, I did this to you and that was pretty screwed up and I apologize. At least they did make a, a cursory effort to acknowledge, you know, the wrong and, and to, to make it right in some small way versus others who, who have not. So yeah, I can I can understand that, and the reason the reason I asked because I saw a lot of follow up questions in the chat, which I thought were really cool, um, <clears throat> was that I, I'm trying to again with my sister in particular um, help her move to a similar state where you know it doesn't matter what I had absolutely no control as a child over what my what my father did, what my mother did, or whatever, uh, but I don't have to allow myself to remain victimized by it, and I'm trying to help her move to that same state of plane. So I was just looking for, you know, tidbits in your explanation or discussion there that I could use. Do you mean sort of how to avoid victimization? Um, well, I, I suppose, but let me, let me lay it out. Like I made a choice to not be victimized by what happened. And without (laughs) making that choice, I think I would be in a much, much worse place. Sorry. And I I don't mean to interrupt you. I just, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm clear about what you're saying. Do you mean that you were victimized because if, if you were victimized in the past, you can't make the choice to not be victimized because it's already happened, right? Well, no, not you're, – you're right. What I mean is to allow that to continue. Right. To, you know, right. The, the, the ill effects of that. I'm talking about making a conscious choice to not allow that to still affect me negatively as an adult so that I can move on and have productive and healthy and loving relationships. And how did you do that? I, I, you know what? That's the. <laughs> Sadly, I don't really have an answer other than I just determined that if I allowed, I, I, I took responsibility and ownership of my future, and I knew that in order to do that, I had to let go of this stuff in the past that would otherwise hold me back. And I determined that, you know, my dad was an asshole. My dad took off. I didn't want anything to do with me. That was his choice. But I don't have to be the same way as a father, and so I'm not. Um, you know, I, I didn't develop trust issues because I knew that if I wanted people to trust me, I had to be a trustworthy and be willing to trust people in return. And people who screw my trust, well, sorry, they're not trustworthy, so I don't trust them. And it was it was just a, a, a growing process that I made. But ultimately, it came down to a personal choice to say, hey, you know, I can remain a victim of this or I can develop myself into, you know, not allow the ill effects of that to continue to shape how my relationships develop as an adult. Right. Right. So if I can paraphrase, it's sort of like if you keep building a sandcastle at low tide and then the tide comes in and washes it away and you want to keep that sandcastle, then you're like, okay, you, you accept, right? You understand they're getting your sandcastle knocked over every day. You say, okay, well, the tide's going to come in and knock over my sandcastle. So I'm going to move where I build it because I accept that as a reality. I'm just going to have to move it. Right. That's, 
pretty spot on. I, I wish I had that recorded so I could play that for my sister. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. It'll come out as a show. But, but that, yeah, I mean, that to me is – but that's closure, right, which is to say, well, this person is simply not capable or they've proven that whether it's, you know, conscious or not, who knows, right? But, you know, there's, there's, there's a functional incapacity for that person to behave in a decent way, in a way that is, is, is safe uh, for me, that it is productive and positive and, and makes me feel good. And uh, so, yeah, and, and I think also for me, closure is, um, has something to do with recognizing when restitution becomes impossible. Because I think it's really, it's really bad to stay in relationships where, restitu- where there's been significant wrong, but restitution is impossible. This is guarantee for frustration. Because where, like, so, you know, one of the questions I asked about my own history was I said, okay, well, is there anything, say, that my parents could do that would make me accept what happened to me as a child? Right? Because, I mean, that's what restitution is. It's making whole. It's making okay, making things okay, right? And... You know, so if somebody puts a dent in my car, then they have to fix the dent in my car, you know, give me a, maybe a couple of hundred bucks for my trouble, and then I'm okay. Like, I'm not – restitution – it's too much restitution if you would then want them to knock your car again because they gave you a million dollars. That's too much restitution, right? Restitution is that balancing point where it's like, okay, I accept what happened. Uh, I don't really want it to happen again because it wasn't great, but I'm okay with the fact that it happened because restitution has been made. It's sort of a just the right amount. It's a delicate sort of balance. But for me, when restitution became impossible, then certainty about the relationship became, became clear for me. And not only was restitution impossible, even if people had wanted to give it to me, but there was no indication that people wanted to give it to me, right? And so that gave me some sort of very, uh, very clear certainty about, uh, uh, about the relationship and, and where it was heading. And once you have that certainty, then you can make, I think, a more a clear and rational decision about uh, whether, it's, whether it's worth it for you. Indeed. Hey, hey, thanks again for taking my call. I really appreciate the input. You're very welcome. And I had another thought that I was that was popping around in my head. I thought it was really good, but I'm not sure. Maybe it'll come back before the end of the show. But but yes, that's, it's a great question. It's a great question. Um, I think I think passivity is an important thing in relationships. You know, we I think particularly people who've been victimized, we feel that we have to work really hard on our relationships. And uh, I find that it's really important to not do that <laughs> at times. Certainly not to do that with regards to other people's actions. You know, you can just sit, sit back, wait, and see. I think is really important. Uh, oh, yeah, okay, I remember what I was going to say. I was going to say, okay, so people in relationships will often view hurt or upset as a negative. And I have actually found that to be not true in, in my good relationships. In my good relationships, the fact that, I will hurt other people or that they will hurt me from time to time is not a negative. It, in fact, can be an ex- a positive because it gives great opportunity for, for growth and, and uh, self-knowledge. And it also gives great opportunity for an increase in trust. So if somebody's never hurt you, then I guess you trust them, but that trust has never been tested. But if somebody's hurt you and then has apologized and made restitution, then your trust is actually, rather than sort of zero or one, it's plus 10. Right now, if they hurt you and they don't make, then it goes into the negatives. But your relationship can get stronger through conflict. It can get stronger through being hurt if the other person does the right thing or if you do the right thing when you hurt someone. Uh, So uh, rather than seeing relationship uh, problems or conflicts or hurt as an automatic negative, which is sort of how I was raised, I actually now view conflict as an interesting potential and a a positive potential for further intimacy, self-knowledge and trust in the other person. 
Thanks again, Steph. I, that's it for me, and I look forward to the rest of the show. Thank you again. All right. Thanks, man. All right, Wayne, you're up. Thanks Yahoo. for waiting. Oh, you are uh, waning. I'm waxing. Go on. Okay. First thing I was wondering was, in most of your podcasts, you seem to be kind of fixated on the state of the United States and fixated on their political situation. Um, you're living in Ontario, right? Yes. Hold Canadian citizenship, right? Yeah. Uh, you're not worried about things at home? Am I not worried about things at home? Yeah. Well, no, I don't think that's the case. Uh, the, uh, I've actually, man, I've just started up doing a, sorry, I've just started up doing a show with the, the head of Mises Canada where we're going to be discussing more, more Canadian issues. <laughs> but yeah, um, no, I mean, there's, there's certainly things to be concerned about uh, here in Canada for sure. Uh, of course, if you're in Canada, perhaps you are. Uh, you know that think happens uh, Ontario. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, we we have a you know we we are sort of like a heron on the back of the uh, hippo called the United States. So uh, what happens to the U.S. has a significant impact on Canada. Although Canada is certainly moving away from dependence on trade with the U.S. for obvious reasons. Well, like Robin but, uh, Williams put it, we're the loft party, or we're the loft department above a really cool party. Right, right. So, um, but of course, it's you know it's um, it's demographics and it's generosity. Um, so, uh, if most of my listeners are in the U S and most of my donations come from the U S well, uh, it's a case of follow the money. Uh, so, uh, I certainly, yeah, I think, I think Canada is very interesting. I think there's a lot to learn about, you know, in Canada, you know, there's this myth that, that Canada is socialist and America is more free market. Uh, and in many ways that's just not true. Uh, it's just not true at all. Even if you discount the whole military industrial complex, which runs so much of American politics and economics, uh, Canadian taxes can be as low, if not lower, than the U.S. Uh, taxes, and um, there's a lot more freedoms. Not lo- there's lower inter- inter-provincial trade barriers in many ways than there are uh, interstate trade barriers. So Canada has a bit more of a uh, focus on on free trade. Environmentalism is not quite as strong a movement here uh, as it is in the U.S. and has a little less political clout and is able to block less less stuff. Uh, so. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think Canada, is a, it's, it's fascinating, and I've sort of been meeting for a while to make the case for Canada, because people said, why do you live in Canada? Well, there's a lot of good reasons to live in Canada relative to other tax farms. So, um, yeah, I, I think, it's, um, I think, it's, I think it's, a, it's a point well taken, and I will certainly try to focus more, more on Canadian content. Okay, well, the, the primary motive I had for asking you that was we do have a growing situation here in Ontario that um, – has lately been affecting me a whole lot personally, and I just wanted to get your opinion on this. Um, there's a fellow by the name of uh, Ian Thompson from Port Colborne, which is actually just a little bit, uh, I guess, southwest of me, uh, that is actually still being tried in our courts because he defended himself and his homestead against a group of teenagers that were firebombing it. He actually has video cameras, you know, like security cameras that have actual footage of these kids firebombing his house. Um, He's a local firearms instructor. He went and got a revolver and fired a couple of shots in the air, and the kids ran off. The day was saved. But now he's up on charges for not properly storing firearms. (laughs) Did the kids get charged? No. And it's going, what? 
we had a Vietnamese fellow in Toronto get charged with kidnapping after he apprehended a repeat shoplifter, held him in his store until the police could arrive. Right. I remember seeing that one in the news. And myself, I, as I said, live in St. Catharines, moved down here in 93, and between 1994 and Saturday, just past Saturday, I have been assaulted, like physically attacked, 12 times. By who? By aggressive panhandlers, and robbed on December 5th when I was in... Uh, Niagara Falls, New York, at gunpoint. Holy. And I'm thinking, you know, what the hell are we allowed to do to defend ourselves anymore? I'm beginning to get a little fed up with this. Right, right. Well, I mean, I think that, um, you know, fi- firing shots in the air is, is tricky, right? Because you don't know where the hell they're going to land. Um, and so that's, you know, well, that's a challenge. Did. Again, I don't know post, the situation. It was published as firing warning shots. He actually fired them into the ground. Oh, he fired them into the ground. Okay, okay. Right, right. Well, my, you know, look, my guess would be, uh, look, we all know that there's a whole bunch of different legal systems in the world. I mean, so, this is certainly the case in Canada. And I'm sorry to be annoying, but I'm going to quote a U.S. example simply because it was mentioned by Harry Brown. There was some congressman who was really big on the war on drugs, right? Fight the war on drugs and... And so on, and, you know, death penalty for drug dealers and all this sort of stuff. And then his own son was apprehended um, selling cocaine to a friend of his. And uh, what did the congressman do? Well, uh, he immediately used all of his political clout to keep his son out of jail to attempt to get him into rehab. Uh, And uh, he strenuously argued for, you know, the fact that his son was helpless in the face of his addiction and needed help. And, you know, that jailing him would be the worst thing to do. I mean, this is natural. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. Um, you know, why are people so... Everyone's created equal, except some are more equal than others. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, why is it that people find it so easy to get all fired up about immigration? Uh, because they... Uh, or you know, illegal immigrants, right? I mean, because they don't know these people, really. I mean, that's, that's sort of natural. And if you look at the disparities in black-white sentencing in the U.S. and other places, I mean, it's just... It's, it's hideous. So, you know, the, the question to me would always be, okay, well... Who were these teenagers? And do these teenagers have parents who have political clout? Uh, Or are they part of a sort of sympathetic group that um, the media could spin, right? Because these kinds of things very often, I I think, are politically motivated. And people sort of say, okay, well, if I don't prosecute this, what's going to happen? Or if I do prosecute this, uh, what's going to happen? Certainly, launching firebombs at someone's house should be – is a criminal offense. And so if people weren't prosecuted – uh, it's because uh, there's political connections that, uh, that are going on. I believe they were charged right? with public mischief and given the usual slap on the wrist that young offenders get. Right, right. I think it was literally a an instance of teenagers with too much time on their hands uh, getting bored and just trying to look for something to give their life a thrill. Or at least that's what it appears like. I don't know everything because it's still in the courts and they can't publish it all. Right. Now, of course, I mean, the government doesn't particularly want citizens to get self-sufficient in this area. Oh, of course not. Right. I mean, one of the they, they want, want you to phone 911 and wait for the 20 minutes for nothing to happen rather than deal with it yourself because there's a lot of paperwork then. 
Yeah, like according to what they've actually published, uh, one of the lawyers has stated that it should have taken this fellow a full 60 seconds to both retrieve the firearm and then go to the separate location where the ammunition should have been stored. And I'm, when your house is on fire, a full 60 seconds will kill you. So, right, and so they, you know, there's this old idea, right? <laughs> you can't take the law into your own hands, right? That's the big statement. You can't take the law. You have to you know, rely on the professionals. Like, like self-defense has become something that you need to outsource to other people. Um, I mean, the police take the law into their own hands all the time. Earlier, this is one of the reasons I want to move to the U.S. Southwest, particularly Arizona and or New Mexico. You'll certainly get some more latitude there, from what I understand about that sort of stuff. Oh, there is only one state in the union now that uh, you still are required to have a concealed carry permit. Everywhere else, you can carry concealed, no problem. But in right. Illinois, forget it. Right. Notice right. the home of Al Capone. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Maybe that's got something to do with it. But yeah, well, so I mean, I, I sympathize. With Chicago's mayor, but that's another story altogether. Yeah, no, I, uh, I I sympathize. Um, you know, there's people have this belief, you know, uh, that, um, and I, you know, I credit a libertarian legal theorist with giving me this insight. But people have this belief, you know, that there's this magic words that are written down, and you know, the judges they must follow that. You know, if you can make the case, if you can show the law, then the judges are sort of like robots, or it's like a magic spell that controls people. But uh, but the case is not the case. And, you know, people who've had legal dealings with the – tell me consistently. Like, it doesn't matter what you say. You know, it, it's random in there. Uh, it, you know, say a government of laws and not of men. Well, the laws don't enforce themselves. There's, it's only and forever a government of men. And so the fact that there's seemingly random stuff coming out that's contrary to the law to me is, is you know, it's kind of entirely to be expected. I mean how, how could it be different? Yeah, like when I was operating my own business, I used to run a paintball store here in St. Catharines. And uh, there was a Jamaican gang that moved into the business next door. And the night that there was a murder committed in there and a running gunfight up Welland Avenue, I'm the guy that called the cops. And suddenly I got death threats. Well, my customers got death threats. I went three months with no customers. And, well, you know, a small business in Canada, three months with no customers, you haven't got any business. Oh, yeah. And I lost everything. And according to our wonderful political system, there's sweet F.A. I can do about it. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, I won't, bore you. I won't bore you with my own experiences in this area, but... I mean, the only people who seem to have faith in the law are those people who've never tried to use it. And um, I mean, and of course, half the world is lawless anyway. I mean, the, the, the black and gray market economy where people have no access to contract law is half the world's workers are stuck in this uh, extrajudicial, <laughs> what's that a word you really can't say when you're drunk? Not that I'm drunk, but um, yeah, I, I think it's well, by 2020, uh, two thirds of the world's workers are going to be in the gray market or the black market. And, uh, of course, according to all status theories, there should be nothing but violence and bloodshed in half the world's workers, pop, in half the world's worker population, because there's no access to, to the law. And uh, this is, of course, not the, the case. The gray market is the freest market on the planet. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, we have half, half, the world's economy, half the world's workers are running on no state contracts. And um, it's, not, uh, it's not the chaos like that everyone eBay expects. is so popular. Right, right. eBay basically is a large gray market. 
Yeah. All right, Listen, we've got only a few more minutes left, so I want to make sure we get to the last callers. But uh, thank you very Not much. No problem. I really want to extend my sympathies and hope that you enjoy the uh, the new CanCon coming up. Oh, and you and I got to have a private conversation someday about the Canadian military. There's some things you should know. <laughs> I always but like I have to been party to. <laughs> All right, give me a shot. Have fun. <clears throat> well, we don't have any other callers on the line at the moment, but we do have somebody asking and uh, – you know, maybe you want to have a few comments about this or thoughts about this, but someone asked if you had seen that Ireland is banning the spanking of children. I have not seen that. And I was looking, asking for a link. Um, he's looking for it now, so. I have not seen that. Because that would be interesting. Serbia, too. Someone else says. Yeah, I mean, I I try not to be, you know, obviously Jeez, a sorry. law is a law, right? I try not to be too cynical about this sort of stuff. But I wonder, I wonder if the reason that some of this stuff is occurring is because children are being sort of collectivized, so to speak. So, so many children are being dumped in daycare that it has become almost impossible for the daycare workers to manage traumatized kids. So I wonder if there's not a move. You know, I'm not saying that, you know, people are indifferent to kids and all that. Maybe there's more of an altruistic measure uh, towards having kids not be hit. And I think there's something to that. But I also wonder the degree to which it may not just be that uh, people are um, uh, people are finding it impossible to run daycares with too many traumatized kids. You know, that's that's a guess. Uh, I don't know. So more of a um, more of the calving strategy of the state, so to speak. Yeah. Like now we have you now that you have one caregiver, like, let's see, we had about 25, think, kids. Uh, in when I worked in a daycare, and there was one other teacher and myself. Not that I was a teacher; I was just a kid. But um, you know, so that's you know, twelve or thirteen students per um, uh, per caregiver, and so maybe there's a sense that you know that can't work with traumatized kids. Uh, and you know, having one kid, I can ima- I mean, one kid who's an exciting handful, uh, I think uh, is. Um, you know, if I had like 12 or 13, it would be much more chaotic. So there could be that aspect that the sustainability of the outsourcing of, of child raising model uh, is is threatened by it. And that's why, I, again, I, I don't want to be overly cynical, So, but maybe it is because they all just really love the kids now and are waking up to that. Uh, I have some significant suspicions about that just based on personal and empirical evidence, but um, uh, I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Yeah, I think um – I don't know if you'd get any like actual hard data on that, but maybe if you found uh, the, 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 rel- the relative degree of how many kids are in daycare versus um, whether that law exists. Oh, yeah. But I mean, that's been shooting up like crazy. I mean, th- we know that for a fact. I mean, I can without even looking it up, I can tell you that it's way higher be- simply because the number of single parent families is so high. And I mean, how many single parent families uh, is it where the mom doesn't have to work? Right. No. Well, I'm also thinking because Serbia, for example, has this, and I don't know, like the. So 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 we're going back to because I have very little actual update information, but they used to be part of Yugoslavia. Is that right? And yes. Um, so I I don't know if if there would have been a lot of fracturing of the family unit in that, or if if that's happened over the past couple of decades, or what. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the uh, daycare enrollment in Serbia is not at the tip of my tongue for obvious reasons. But no. yeah, if anyone knows and would like to uh, to sort of look at it, I think that would be interesting. 
and, and then how sorry go ahead <clears throat> how would you be able to um so so those two things would be correlated how would you be able to sort of what what would be the prediction of that as a theory if that was a reason why or does it matter well, I mean, I guess it matters, and this is really, really off the top of my head, so please take this with all the skepticism in the world. But um, uh, if, if you're still going to control kids, and that, that obviously is, is the case, right? So if the state keeps getting bigger and more brutal, then you have to replace corporal punishment with something, right? Look, the more sophisticated an economy gets, the less valuable, I love you. highly traumatized children are. And so if you want to compete in the modern economy, not hitting kids is a pretty good thing. Now, that doesn't mean that you want to set children free. If you really want to set children free, you'd privatize education and eliminate the national debt. And that, of course, is not going to happen at all. Oh. Right. So state power is increasing over children, but children are less valuable in a modern economy if they're physically traumatized. Because they're you know, too volatile, can't think, IQ points drop and so on. And so, I, th I mean, to me, it's just a farming technique. It's like, okay, well, if we don't hit them, then they'll be more productive tax cattle for us, and that's good. Uh, but, of course, we have no interest in setting them free. Uh, there's no principled uh, objection to, to violence or anything like that. Uh, it's just it's less productive. We, we can't compete with traumatized kids, and you know, we, we really need to keep them in daycare. And maybe we're having trouble finding daycare workers because the children are too hard to manage. Um, and, of course, if, if they were really interested in the welfare of kids, they would ban – <laughs> you know, these uh, psychotropic drugs. Um, but that's just another part of the management strategy. So again, I don't want to be overly cynical. I, th I think that parenting is getting better over time. Um, but, I, you know, as far as these laws go, uh, the, the, the one positive sign is that the, electric, uh, the electorate is willing to vote for it, uh, or, or at least not willing to vote politicians out who approve it. So I think that's a good thing. But I certainly don't see it as any commitment to, uh, you know, freeing kids from state power. It just means that you have to you know, have more indoctrination and less um, uh, less brutality. You know, which one is going to be more more clear to kids in the long run? You know, you could argue that if kids are hit, they learn the true nature of the state faster than if they're propagandized. Yeah, and uh, just as an example, now this is the United States, and <clears throat> there's no ban on spanking in the U.S. Although there's there's been a lifting of there's been a ban of corporal punishment in schools, which is you know limited, not not uh, directly to parents. Um, doesn't apply directly to parents, but Obama passed or commented or signed a law, whatever it was. Uh, <laughs> this is how closely I follow this. Uh, recently, about um, you did a video on it about uh, keeping the children in school until they're eighteen. Yeah, no, uh, that's right. So I'm, I'm wondering if um, there are also those laws already exist in those other countries, or if they will come to pass soon because of that. Now that's granted. That's at the other end of the scale of the children, yeah. but that's 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 in line with the propaganda, keeping them propagandized. Well, I mean, I think also if you look at the correlation, I think this is sort of related as well. So where does most of the school spanking go on in the U.S.? Well, it's in the South, right? And the right. South has traditionally been the source of the warrior class in the U.S. And so countries that are warlike simply cannot afford to ban corporal punishment. So they just can't, right? I mean, so I mean. The two that seem to be the most aggressive towards kids are the uh, UK and the US, and they're both, you know, have heavily heavy military commitments overseas and have uh, at least for most of the last decade. And so you can't get soldiers if children. You, I mean, soldiers are harder to come by. Uh, at least good soldiers, so to speak, are hard, effective soldiers are harder to come by if children are not 
brutalized. And so uh, I did this regression and I did the statistical analysis a while back. It's on the message board somewhere where you look at uh, military enrollment relative to spanking states and it's it tracks fairly closely. Uh, so as long as America is still uh, an imperialistic power, uh, it's going to have a tough time uh, banning spanking because, you know, it's it, everybody gets deep down that you you need that physical aggression against your kids in order to get soldiers who are willing to shoot people. Was there somebody on your uh, an interview you did where they were talking about um, what the what the actual biblical interpretation of spare the rod, spoil the child meant, is supposed to mean, or was that somewhere I saw that on YouTube somewhere? It's been it's been floating around, right? I mean, it's the yeah. idea that the rod is is correction. The rod is not a physical thing you hit a child with. But yeah, it's like a, yeah, it's, it's, it's supposed to be correction. the shepherd sort of comparison, and of course, it's not what people use it to mean anyway. So it's kind of a moot point, but. Well, I mean, it doesn't argue for the divinity of the Bible if a key passage is misunderstood to mean that you're supposed to hit your children. You know, <laughs> okay. that doesn't that, that, that come to my mind. That didn't yeah, I mean, yeah. if there's one thing that a loving God would be clear on, it's don't hit your kid children, right? And if God supervised the writing and the translation of the books and that got messed up, that's not a very good argument as to <laughs> the fact that there's a, you know, a loving God King who oversaw the entire linguistic exercise. So, yeah, it's 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 kind of why those jokes about um, um, th- there's various jokes about uh, you know people die go to heaven and there's some, you know, like I think Robin Williams did did one. I'm of course murdering the joke now. Um, instead of virgins, was Virginians. He's, you know, some was getting kicked <laughs> in the ass by Washington and Jefferson and a whole bunch of people. So, right, that's funny. Yeah, I mean, that's you know, or, or if people did misunderstand it, at least send them a vision, you know, saying, right, no, right, right, don't, don't be doing that, right. Whoa, whoa, whoa! You're, you're, t- what, what are you doing? What are you doing? Right, right, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, gotcha. you spare the rod. No, that means that if they don't watch enough episodes of the Twilight Zone, then they're going to grow up uh, culturally undisciplined. Oh, there's an obscure joke for you. I'll wait for three people to get that. Rod Sterling. Anyway, no matter. <laughs> I know what the Twilight Zone is, but I don't, I don't have anything beyond that. All right, I'll see if uh, see if anyone is going to come online. All right, well, I'll I'll finish up with an Izzy story then. So okay. First of all, I mean, just a, I thought it was a pretty funny story. We took her to see a play. And a woman was out, and she was singing, and then she started tap dancing, you know, clip-clop, clip-clop, with her feet on the stage. And Isabella brought down the house by turning to me and saying loudly, Is she a horsey? Because <laughs> on that clip-clop, and it was just great. It's not a good sign for a kid's play when the funniest line comes from a three-year-old. Anyway, so there was that, and then we were um, at some people's houses, and... Uh, we have this thing, of course, where we say, as I've talked about with uh, the, some of the other parents here, yeah, the clock, it's the clock that says you have to go to bed. It's a clock that says it's time for this. It's a clock that says it's time for lunchtime. So we, you know, we offload the, all the indignation to the clock. The poor clocks in this house have an entirely unjustifiably bad reputation. Anyway, so she wanted me to, I was, ch- I was chatting with the people and she wanted me to come and play with her. And I said, just a few minutes, just a few minutes. Anyway, so she had, uh, she was playing with a little clock and she moved the clock to to eight o'clock. And she said, Dada, it's eight o'clock. You, you must come and play. It's playtime now. The clock says so. <laughs> I'm like, you win that round, honey. <laughs> you know, that's just, 
that's fantastic. She is, um, you know, she's quite the negotiator. And if she's, you know, if she's going to use those rules, then I'm going to obey them because that's only fair. So yeah, I dropped what I was doing, and I went to play with her. And um, that's the next story. She's <laughs> just brilliant. Oh, yeah. So you're saying your daughter did that, too. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, the, mo- the, the, the you got to be really careful with the rule. The moment you have a rule in the house, uh, it's about eight minutes until the kids use it against you. That's why you have to be you, you, a UPB slave. All right. Well, we have no more questions. Uh, I guess I'll finish my meal without chewing in everybody's brain. Oh, Pinker. Yeah, sorry. And I, I've been lots of questions about this this new Pinker book. Um, but obviously it's 800 pages with a lot of numbers. So um, not only is my daughter frightened of the numbers of the clock, I'm frightened of numbers in books. And um, so uh, his, his thesis, as far as I understand it, is that you know violence has gone down as uh, it's a sort of modernity moves forward and so on. And... I would imagine, you know, you know, people will doubtless correct me if I'm wrong, uh, as they want to do, and and is it good for them to do? But um, he probably doesn't include national debts in that, and uh, I think that's that's pretty important because that is a form of theft against the young, and uh, it's easy to reduce violence through bribery. I mean, that's the whole point of the mafia, right? If you pay them off, then the recorded incidences of arson and kneecapping goes down, right? So if you only look at these statistics of people who pay off the mafia, you'd say, well, you know, more people pay off the mafia, then violence has gone down. Well, it kind of hasn't though, right? It's just that people are being paid off. So if you spend, if the government spends more than it earns, then it's going to bribe people into not being aggressive, and so, therefore, the violence is going to go down, but all you're doing is making the situation worse in the long run, right? So, when the government runs out of money, as it's inevitably going to do, barring some yeah, amazing Atlas Shrugged-style 20th century motor company invention that triples everybody's income, which will only postpone it, of course, and make it even worse. But uh, if the government uh, – when the government runs out of money, what is going to happen to the people? Well, they're going to get very violent. They're going to get very aggressive. And um, – there is going to be a significant spike in social aggression. And uh, so if he's not taking into account national debts as a way of drugging people into compliance and reducing the amount of violence through rampant bribery, then I think he's um, sort of missing the point. And if he's not talking about government monopolies, then that also is uh, a problem, right? So if he's not talking about, well, the the fact that the postal office and the, the law system and the uh, – education system, uh, almost all state monopolies, then that's violent, right? So if you mistake compliance for the law for a reduction in violence, then I think that he could make that case. Uh, but again, this is just off the top of my head, uh, things that I would be concerned about in in looking at the book. From what I recall from what other people have reported about this book is that he attributes the reduction in violence to, unless this is a new book, yeah, he attributes the reduction in violence to state to the to, to the to the existence of the state, that the state itself has reduced violence. Right, right, and I mean, if you sort of look at the, the state has grown bigger throughout the twentieth century, and um, world wars have diminished uh, at least since since the nineteen forties, of course. Mm. And uh, so, again, I, I'm obviously simplifying what is probably a brilliant book by a certainly brilliant guy. So, I, you know, I hesitate to say it, but I can certainly see how you could make that statistical correlation. I just think that you need to ignore 
a bunch of things which libertarians and anarchists understand are violent, uh, but which, of course, is largely invisible to the mainstream, right? Right. And not to not to do any poisoning of the well or anything like that, but I believe he's also an academic, which makes it a little more difficult for him to see that. Right. So he obviously would not see that his paycheck is to some degree funded through the coercive monopolies and rent-seeking of academics and so on. So again, and there's no reason why he would see these things. I mean, right. they're blinkered out through propaganda and self-interest. How many people know I mean, how many people in academics know a libertarian or an anarchist who can make this case for them? It's, you know, it's functionally invisible to to people. And uh, so I can completely understand where he would be coming from. Uh, but of course, to those who are working from first principles, uh, it, uh, it's, it's just a little bit more obvious. Uh, just as a reminder, people, we don't have a show next week. <clears throat> Steph is going to be traveling. That is true. That is true. I will be in Odessa, Texas. And uh, it's um, libertyfestwest.com, I think, is uh, where you can go. I think they still have some tickets. I hope, I hope that you will come. You know, I really, really want to encourage people to come. Um, obviously, it's, you know, conferences are hard to do. They're hard to do. Uh, and it's, it's really, it's nail-biting uh, to do. And uh, so if you can come, it really does help uh, people who are doing these conferences. I mean, I'm not saying it's, you know, do it just because it helps people, but it really is helpful. And uh, yeah, libertyfestwest.com. It's uh, going to be February the 11th from 5.30 p.m. to midnight. And there's going to be a bunch of other things. I'll be in there earlier. So anybody who wants to get together, just give me a shout. But, um, uh, you know, come. It's a great thing. It's a great thing. It's a memorable thing. You know, it, as I get older, <laughs> let me be annoying and just use that phrase. As I get older, and this is not just me, this is, this is the science talking as well. But as I get older, what I remember in my life are the things that were different. So if you don't come to Liberty Fest West, then you'll just have a weekend. And, you know, in a month or two, you won't even remember what you did. If you come to Liberty Fest West, you will remember that until your dying day. And it, I think it's important to mix things up, to have memories that are different from the average, different. And if you know, if it costs you some money, obviously it's going to cost you some money. But buying memories is a, is one of the best trades in the world. <laughs> you know, buying things that are different, buying things that are memorable, is one of the best deals. That it's one of the best ways that you can spend your money. You know, all other things being equal. So uh, I would really want to make make the pitch for that. You wouldn't happen to be flying through. Denver on a connection, would you? No, I don't think I am. Okay. Because I'm going to actually, that's that I'm moving then, and then I'm going to actually be in Denver on the the 12th, or arriving on the late 11th. So. Oh, cool. Well, if I if I am, I well, I haven't uh, I don't have my ticket here, but I will send the check and let you know if I am. Yeah, that would be awesome. It would I'll, be I'll, great. I'll find a way to make it up to the airport if I'm there in time. Absolutely. Cool. All right. Well. Uh, I don't think we have anyone else, and I think it's the time to go. So, All right. Away. Well, thank, thank you, everybody, so much. Uh, just my usual goodbye. Um, look forward to your donations at freedomainradio.com forward slash donate. A massive shout-out of thanks to everybody who's helping out with the documentary. Uh, if I can bring the level of the script up to the level of expertise that people are bringing to the table, I think that we'll have a truly uh, wonderful, wonderful 
means of communicating. And of course, donations that are coming in are going to go and help fund the rather exciting bill <laughs> that will be coming to you as a result of this. So if you would like to help out, uh, I would obviously really, really appreciate it. And uh, I think it's going to be a great way to get some very powerful messages out to people in a way that you know, I mean, what is it? I think the story of your enslavement has just passed 800,000 views. It's going to go up to a million relatively soon. And uh, so if I can make one that's just as good as that one, that's pretty powerful. If I can make one that's even better, which is, of course, the goal, or we can all make one that's better, then it's going to be a pretty powerful vehicle for getting the message across. And so that's going to be a different experience. <laughs> and let's pay for that if we can. So um, thanks, everybody, so much. Uh, you know, the, this... This conversation, the, the honesty, the openness, the curiosity uh, of people, the disagreements, the, the conflicts, it's all part of the same delicious mix. And uh, everybody who adds salt to the soup is, is as worthwhile a cook as everybody who adds sugar as well. So thank you, everybody, so much. Have yourselves a wonderful week. Remember, no show next week, but um, we will, of course, be picking it up the week after and have a great, great week. <laughs>